This episode is brought to you by AudioQuest, makers of the mythical series Analog Interconnects. Click the link in the show notes for more information. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Darker Audio Podcast. With me this time out is we're well, we're in kind of we're in big company today. We're joined by Paul Barton of PSB Loudspeakers, and Paul Barton, I believe you're the Grand Poobah of Canadian speaker design. Is that right? Well, I've been called that before. Yes, <laughs> even when I was younger, much younger. <laughs> right. So PSB has been going fifty years this year. Is that right? That's right. I, I registered the company in June of 1972. So right. just, over, just over 50 years. Fantastic. So when you started, did you ever think that it would kind of you know, run this long and you would be this successful? Um, t- uh, you know, I kind of took it day by day. My background is in music. So anything that was it, you know, I, I made a decision. I, I'm a violinist, and I made a decision mm-hmm. when I was quite young to, you know, migrate from sound production, which is performing music, to sound reproduction. Mm. And, you know, that was kind of the thought process as I started in the, in the business. And I, I, used, I worked in a hi-fi store when I was in high school. Ah, okay. And the, de- the dealer allowed me to build kits um, just to give you a little bit of background, my, my father, when I was 11 years old, well, he started when I was nine, hmm. built me a full-size violin based on a, a Stradivarius violin called the Messiah, which oh, was wow. highly, highly documented. In fact, it's under glass in England, and it was built by Stradivarius himself as a showpiece, and he, he vowed that it should never be played. And it has never been owned by anyone. It's just a, a showpiece. And my father got the plans for it because it had been highly documented and uh, built me one. And um, uh, if you go onto our website and look at the uh, 50th year uh, documentary, you'll see me with that violin that, that he built for me. Uh, so, <clears throat> excuse me, he built the violin. When I was, uh, he, he finished building it when I was 11. And uh, since he had a wood shop, as I got older, and you know, he and I built the very first speakers for our two-channel two hi-fi system when stereo was just coming out. Mm. And uh, I kind of got a kick out of it and started investigating. I'm the kind of person that likes to uh, take things apart to see how they work and then put them back together. So I, I kind of had that knack of, you know, troubleshooting and fixing things and from there i took it and built kits that university students the dealer that i was uh that i worked with or that i worked at he was near the university of waterloo in in canada Mm -hmm. and uh and he let me sell these kits to the students and they used to build them in their dorms and after i finished uh, high school two high school buddies and myself rented a place just in a town north of where I lived called St. Jacob's. And uh, that summer we started building loudspeakers and uh, I never looked back. You know, we just 
kept growing. And uh, in 1974, I had the luxury of being introduced to Dr. Floyd Toole, mm-hmm. uh, a researcher at uh, a government institution here in Canada called the National Research Council, mm-hmm. which is a think tank in Canada which employs about a thousand PhDs in all of the sciences on a campus of about 65 buildings, the main campus in Ottawa, Canada. <clears throat> and it has a facility there with an anechoic chamber, uh, an acoustics, it had acoustics uh, division uh, in the physics department. And that's where Dr. Floyd Toole worked. And I was introduced to him by a, a editor of a magazine here in Canada at the time, it was called uh, Audio Scene, mm-hmm. a McLean Hunter publication. And uh, the assistant editor was uh, a fellow named Ian Masters. And he saw an advertisement I had done in the magazine for PSB speakers, called me up. And because he was using Floyd to help him evaluate loudspeakers, measuring them in the anechoic chamber, and then doing some listening of them for the magazine. He had already got Floyd doing some of these things, uh, comparing loudspeakers. And okay. he said, you know, you got to meet Paul. And so I met Floyd. And that was in the period of time when I started investigating using measurements. And he was also doing the experimenting. <clears throat> and that leads to the anniversary uh, product that we're introducing this year called the Passive 50. Mm-hmm. And it's uh, a reminiscent of a model we built back in those days, or was one of the first models that I developed at the National Research Council for PSB. And it was called the Passif One. It was part of a three series of products. One was the Avante, a bookshelf loudspeaker. The other was a Passif, a stand mount, Passif One, a stand mount loudspeaker, and a Passif Two, a larger stand mount. Uh, loudspeaker. <clears throat> so we decided to do the middle one as a as a celebration of PSB, PSB's 50th anniversary, and we're calling what is the replica of the Passive One, mm-hmm. which has a six-inch uh, woof, six-and-a-half-inch woofer, an eight-inch passive radiator, and a one-inch tweeter. <clears throat> and there's a lot of similarities, and there are differences between the Passive one original and the passive 50. I mean, I guess you've, you covered a lot of ground there, Paul, in a, in a very short space of time. And I actually want, I just wanted to go back very quickly to mm. just before you introduced the passives one, two and Advante, when you started out the landscape for, I mean, you talked about students building kits in their dorm rooms, right. but were most loudspeakers available in Canada at that time? Were they imported from the UK and the it, USA? Yes, they were. <clears throat> that, that was, Around that time was the what we called the English invasion. Hmm. And, you know, I felt that in Canada in particular, because I was here, the industry kind of looked at it as the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. And mm-hmm. um, so, you know, we were competing against American loudspeakers and there was in, in, in the U.S. there were Two, camp, two main camps, East Coast and West Coast sound. Uh, the West Coast was the JBLs and the Altex, and the East Coast sound was the Advents and the ARs and the EPI and 
all Boston Acoustics, all of those companies were East Coast Sound. Mm. And then there was then there was the English Invasion, <laughs> um, which was you know mainly Kef and B and W. Kef was something I saw m- more than B and W in the early days. You know the Kef one hundred and four, um, and then the one hundred and four AB. Uh, many of which we would be evaluating in Ottawa, comparing our products with, you know, the different brands. But you're you're right in saying there wasn't anything in Canada at the time in terms of manufacturing. And, of course, in those days, everything was manufactured here in Canada for PSP. We had our own, we had, at the time, had our own factory. Right. So before you were introduced to uh, Floyd Tool, Dr. Floyd Tool, were were you just designing by ear? Is that the way that most companies did it back then? Yes. Uh, I was designing based on, you know, in the early days, um, it was even before uh, teal small parameters uh, were the commonplace in terms of uh, modeling loudspeakers uh, for their performance and then building the cabinets accordingly. <clears throat> so... Uh, in terms of tuning the boxes and that sort of thing, I was using theory mm. and uh, implementing that. But when it came to the full range of frequency response, the measurement systems that I started with were were pretty antiquated. They were just a tone generator and and uh, pink noise, listening to it and listening to music. And you know, when I took the first speakers that I had tuned by ear to Ottawa, mm-hmm. you know, clearly there were. <laughs> there were things that could there there were things that could be improved, uh, you know, based on the theory that you know the speaker is a window, a clear glass window through which you see the original acoustical event. Mm-hmm. So uh, flat frequency response, good dispersion, all of those things uh, are a factor. Is that where Doctor Tall did his sort of primary research in sort of finding out with blind tests? what sort of blind participants tended to favor in terms of frequency response on and off axis? Yeah. Um, I, I, you know, to date, I think even today, there hasn't been more documentation of listener preferences in double blind screen listening tests anywhere else in the world. I mean, Floyd mm. started them in Ottawa, but continued to do them when in 1991 he was hired by Harman to head up all of their engineering and he took that methodology to Harmon and he did more and more work on that over the years. Right. Fact, but obviously, just, Yeah. Sorry. J- just a little, uh, side note, uh, Floyd called me the other day to announce that next year he's actually moving back to Ottawa. Oh, right. Okay. From California. Right. So I I'm guess- looking forward to that. <laughs> yeah. So I guess he, you know meeting him and having access to the NRC really changed the way that you design speakers from the outset. Oh yeah, yeah. It it gave me a it put a microscope on what I was doing, <clears throat> um, not only in terms of the actual design but in terms of quality control and consistency of the products. You know, being able to uh, keep tight tolerances and that sort of thing, build drivers that are consistent and that sort of thing. And you can only do that by doing, you know, lots of measurements. 
and then correlating them with listener preferences. And <clears throat> let me just summarize in, in, please, the simplest, in, in the simplest way the results of those double-blind screen tests that took place back in the 70s and continued right up until today. It, you know, in, and we do them at the office <clears throat> now here in, in, in Pickering, where our offices are. Mm-hmm. And I can summarize the results by saying there are three things that we learned. Number one is that most of the people, most of the time, agree on the relative qualities of a group of loudspeakers. Right. There, there, there is no kind of personal taste when it comes to asking the listener what sounds the most natural to you. And that is the goal, of course, is to make this make the recording um, play back exactly the way the musicians intended it to sound. Mm. The second thing we've learned is that a properly interpreted set of, uh, of objective measurements correlates very strongly with listener preferences so that you, you can, that, that you can um, look at a set of measurements and pretty well predict how it will score in a double-blind screen test. And the third thing we learned is that musical taste and musical preference are no prerequisites for being a good judge of sound. You know, people say, oh, I got a tin ear. No, you know, as long as you have that normal hearing, you will be able to discern these differences when asked to do so. And, and you will agree. The only difference is it takes a bit longer for inexperienced listeners because it's an environment they haven't maybe paid attention to before. Does it stress them out? Does it stress people out when they're sort of being uh, being sort of told they have to you know, express a preference well, under sort of test conditions? Does, uh, does that stress stress can have an effect, but I mean, it depends on the listener and the music and the speaker. But when when you get into the fine granular things, those things may not be as as noticeable. And and let me say something else about the listening test. Mm-hmm. When these tests are conducted, <clears throat> they they are about a twenty minute round of listening, and then about a twenty minute break in between. Mm. So they alternate, just so the listener doesn't get listening fatigue. And the other thing that happens is when the listeners go into the room for the first time, it takes them about the first twenty minute session to just sort out the acoustics in the room and differentiate that with what the speaker sounds like. Right. And it's just a a process that we go through unconsciously. So if you look at the scores of listeners on the first 20 20 minutes of of listening, their results are kind of all over the place. (laughs) And, you know, some people will come out of the room saying, I can't really hear much difference between any of them. And what that tells me, or what that has told us, is they're just sorting out the room. The next time they go in and they come out of that second round, they often say, oh, man, what did you do? Every speaker sounds completely different. And, And it's just a psychoacoustic phenomenon that occurs where 
if you're in the room long enough, you can start to sort out the reflections and the time delays and all of those things. And then you can start hearing the differences between the different loudspeakers much more acutely than you would by just walking in the room initially. And when you're putting speakers in front of listeners or when you, when you did put speakers in front of listeners like this, Mm -hmm. was it a pair of speakers or just one? We did both stereo and mono listening. And what we did was we had a, we had a speaker and this was really driven by Floyd. Uh, It was actually, uh, what was it? It was a tannoy, a gold ring tannoy Mm -hmm. in a, in a, in a small box. And that's a coaxial horn-loaded tweeter in, a, in the middle of a, a woofer. And it was kind of a studio standard back in those days, but it was a terrible-sounding loudspeaker. <laughs> so okay. we would always put that in as sort of an anchor, just, right. so people, just so people could go, oh, yeah, I can hear that one. That one sounds terrible. Just so they had some confidence that they could hear a difference. And we, we did the same experiment in mono and the same experiment in stereo with double double blind screen listening and what we did was we floyd put two turntables in the listening room so that every time a person listened to a pair of speakers they would be in exactly the same position as the pair they listened to before mm-hmm. so that room location and stereo imaging wouldn't be disrupted by changing the focal point of the two, the two pair of speakers that you're comparing. So when we did, when, and this has all been documented. In fact, it's in an AES journal paper. If you mm-hmm. go back and, and research Floyd's papers that he introduced in, in the mid eighties, um, called the subjective versus objective measurements of loudspeakers, mm-hmm. that, that experiment was published in that, in that article, in that article. I'm sorry about that dinging. I get so many emails and I don't know how to shut that off. It's okay. It's, it's, it's fine, Paul. Like, I mean, you're probably going to get background noise from me if, if I don't know, if a courier arrives or I don't yeah. know, there's, there's something, a big truck goes past on Friedrichstrasse, which is just on the other side of the buildings in front of me. Okay. Um, so what, what did you, I mean, I guess, what Let did you just finish say? that experiment? No, please, just, just, please go ahead. Just yes, so you can. <laughs> understand the difference and the reason why we do the experiments the way we do mm. when comparing the stereo setup with the mono setup of four loudspeakers comparing four in stereo and then the same four speakers in mono what happened was you know they they sort of had a one two three four ranking from the listeners in stereo mm-hmm. they also had a one two three four ranking in the same ranking in mono but what happened in stereo <coughs> is that the anchor that I mentioned mm. actually got better in stereo. Huh. And it's because the stereo cues can sometimes mask some tonal things in, in a loudspeaker. So most of the double blind screen testing was done in mono to sort out the acoustic timbre of the loudspeaker. And then stereo would be done after that. Interesting. Yeah. You could get better differentiation between the sonic merits of a group of loudspeakers if you did it in mono rather than stereo because of the stereo cues that were sometimes masking flaws in loudspeakers. 
So if, I mean, I know that you guys are going to send me a pair of Passive 50, the anniversary speaker. Yeah. Does that then suggest that I should listen to, say, one and feed it a mono signal first and then do the stereo pair? Can't hurt. <laughs> I guess it can't, can't hurt. Right. In fact, it would be nice for you to, to listen to it for, you know, timbral things in mono and then see how you perceive those in stereo. Right, because I do find this fascinating because I have heard of other reviewers just, you know, when they're doing a sort of, well, let's call it a subjective listening test. It's implicit, but whatever. Yeah. When they're doing that test, they're just listening to one speaker and one speaker only, as far as I'm aware. And I, I, I mean, I can sort of see why. You're right. I mean, tonal and timbral qualities would come across, but you wouldn't get soundstage or stereophony or anything like that. Well, uh, well think of it this way, is that mm. most of the stereo imaging that, that we hear is in the recording. Mm -hmm. it, it's not necessarily dedicated to the loudspeaker. Pro providing the speaker is doing a decent job of dispersion. Mm -hmm. If it's a very narrow dispersion and there, were, there are reflections in the room and you have, uh, let me just talk a little bit about that phenomena. Please, please do. Um, you know, when you're listening to a speaker in a room, the first sound you hear comes directly from the speaker to you. Mm -hmm. The second sounds you hear are early reflections off mm -hmm. the floor, off the ceiling, off the sidewall, off the back wall. And they excuse me, they arrive slightly after the original signal. Mm -hmm. Well, we as human beings hear timbre and tonal qualities, not just based on the first arrival, but on about the first 50 milliseconds of sound. Mm -hmm. So that early reflections contribute to our perception of the timbre of that particular sound. So if a speaker that has the exact same frequency response on axis doesn't have the same between the two speakers off axis, they will sound different. And one will sound better than the other because the early reflections combined with the direct sound are more timbrely accurate from on one speaker than the other. I see. So this obviously so, explains why having a completely dry room is, is not helpful because you won't get any, any early reflections, right? Well, it, if, it, if it's a dead-end live-in, which is what the BBC have always uh, mm -hmm. done, um, <clears throat> a speaker that's flat on axis, that's all it has to be in a dead-end dead room because right. there are no reflections. So you don't care what's happening off axis, particularly in the mid-range where the tweeter is crossing over to the uh, woofer. Because the tweeter at its lowest frequency has amazingly good dispersion, and the woofer at its highest frequency, where it meets the tweeter, has the worst dispersion. So you want those two to be as close to one another as possible. And we do that by mm. we do that by where I choose the crossover frequency and the kind of horn loading or the waveguide that I put on the tweeters, so that at, at the lowest frequency the tweeter produces it actually has a bit narrower dispersion than it would if it were just flat on the baffle. <clears throat> and it better matches what's happening off axis of, of the woofer that it's crossing over to. So if you look at a PSB off axis, you'll see that the woofer rolling off or the woofers coming down also meets where the tweeter is so that there's no roll off of the first reflection. Mm -hmm. And then there's a great big 
jump in energy around the lowest frequency the tweeter is producing. And that you can hear because, as I said, when we hear a, an acoustical event in a room, we kind of integrate in our brain the acoustic signature of that signal over about 50 milliseconds. Uh, right. I'll give you an example. I'll give mm. you an example of how our brain works like that. And I'll ask you a question. Oh, okay. <laughs> if, 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 if you're on a phone with someone and they're on a speaker phone, Hmm. Can, can you tell they're on a speakerphone? It depends on what kind of speakerphone, because if it's a, like an iPhone, sometimes not, because they do a lot of processing on the signal to kind of mask that. Yeah, but if, if someone's in their office and they punch, they punch on a regular type phone. Yes, you can hear, because you, can, and, you and, can hear the reverb of the room most of the time, right. if, it's, if it's a reverberant room, yes. Yeah, but when you're in that room, do you hear that reverb? No, you don't, because your brain is sort of filtering it out automatically. That's right. So it knows what those reflections are, and it knows they're not important. So it kind of suppresses those. Mm. So that's the 50 milliseconds. If, if there's a longer echo in the room, mm. you'll actually hear it when you're in the room. But when it's a very short echo, you don't hear it because your brain is suppressing it. And that's the kind of processing the brain is doing when you're in a room listening to a loudspeaker and there are reflections, that becomes part of the timbre that you hear. Right, which I think is this is why, because I looked into this recently because I made a video about it, that the, the ideal sort of, uh, or the RT60 of a, a reasonably good listening or music production room should sit somewhere between 300 milliseconds. A third of a second. Yeah. yeah, 500, yeah, between three and five. Yeah. yeah. And you would agree with that? I mean... Oh, yeah. In fact, the the... The uh, listening room that uh, was used extensively at NRC, it's been, it's been dismantled now mm. uh, for a few years, but it, it was actually the IEC recommended listening room for doing subjective evaluations, um, be, you know, because a lot, a lot of data had been produced on it. And, you know, if you look at the IEC's recommended listening room, they will be describing the, the room that Floyd put together okay so i understand then there maybe i could repeat this back to you so that so i can see if i've understood you correctly is that you what you're looking for from a, a well-designed loudspeaker is for the on axis response or rather the off axis response not to be too too far away from the on axis response you want them to be pretty close together right yeah you you don't want some wild dip or peak in right. the off axis because it, it will influence what you hear. Um, you know, like I, I, I can remember oh, doing measurements even in the anechoic chamber and, and looking at it on and off axis and couldn't really decide on the balance of the tweeter until I actually listened to it. It looked good on paper. And, you know, a, a dB here and a dB there in the right places can really make a difference, particularly if it's dealing with something that's, going on off axis. So you did that by ear? Well, the final listening, you know, after you do all the measurements, hmm. I'll sit in the listening room and I'll tweak the values of the components in the tweeter as I'm listening to get that balance just right. Ah, okay. Because it's hard to integrate by looking at just single measurements on and off axis to say, oh, should I bring that one down just a little bit or bring that up? 
you can only do that by doing subjective evaluate, like listening to the speaker. So the final gilding right. the lily, the gilding the lily of a, of a design is, okay, all the fundamentals are there. Now let's just tweak it to sound as good as it can. So you get it sort of 95% of the way they're, the way they're yeah. in the lab, and then the yeah. last 5% you do with your own sort of tweaks and listening in, in the listening chair. Yeah, and because I have the data, I know what I'm changing and how much I'm changing it. And I guess you'd also know that you haven't made a mistake because you've got the data. Right. right. I'm not I'm not falsely listening. I'm not blindly listening to something. I know what I'm listening to. Now when I do when I do the the when I take the speaker after I've done the measurements, I mean I've done it for so many years, I don't have to go through the process. But in the beginning, <laughs> what I would do is I would subject myself to a double blind screen as I did these kind of tweaks. Mm. So I would be tweaking them blindly. Right. Okay. Is is there anything that you um you can well we, we could hear in a speaker that isn't possible to measure in a lab? What what's what's not I think we can measure everything, but we do we don't always know to what degree does that contribute to improving or degrading the sound. Mm. So the scale, like you can, you can see something, but you can't judge by just seeing subtle things, how that will impact what you hear overall. Mm. So yes, I can, I can say that I can't block, I can't, measure a speaker and finalize it by just measurement. Right. I mean, can you measure dynamics? Cause it was suggested to me that that wasn't, it wasn't possible to measure those speakers dynamics. Well, yeah, you can measure, um, well, you, <laughs> you can measure it by looking at distortion. Oh, okay. So that's, that's related to the distortion of the speaker. I'm yeah. just uh, I'm I'm fascinated by this as, as to what these measurements can tell you, and also where you know I see when I say where they fall short, people think I'm trying to pick holes in it. I'm really not. I'm just trying to get like a fairly accurate picture of what's going on. Another phenomena that has to be taken into account, which can't be done by just stat uh, by just doing frequency response measurements and even short term sweeps or pure tone uh, excite excitation to measure distortion at each individual frequency, or you can do a sweep and do an FFT and look at all the harmonics uh, of the distortion. Um, but one another phenomenon that occurs is what we call power compression. Mm -hmm. And that's a phenomenon that as the driver, the tweeter or woofer heats up, the voice coil heats up, the DC resistance of the coil actually gets higher. So the as the impedance goes up, the output of the driver goes down relative to the tweeter, for example, or the woofer. Mm -hmm. So uh, often what we do is we do, um, you know, we, we drive the, the system hard and then we do a frequency. Well, we before we drive the system hard, we do a frequency response. And then we drive the system hard, get it warmed up, and then we do another frequency response to see, in ah. fact, whether power compression is a factor. You know, some people might find that, uh, you know, playing certain kinds of music over a period of time, that the speaker actually starts sounding different. It's because 
the voice coils are heating up and uh, they don't behave the same way because the DC resistance of the copper or the aluminum, depending on what you're using as a voice coil, uh, gets warm and the DC resistance goes up. So the output of that device goes down uh, proportionately. And so is this... Sorry, I want to hone in on that because that's the, that was that's the reason that it's been suggested to me as to why high-pass filtering your mains, your loudspeakers, when integrating a sub is a good thing because you take some of the burden away from the main loudspeakers and that sort of DC resistance increase is less likely to happen. That's right, because where all the energy is occurring is at the very low frequencies where not only is there a lot of energy in music, but also... That's where the impedance of the woofer is the lowest. That's where it's going to be draw. It's going to be drawing the most amount of current. And when it draws more current, it gets hotter. And when it gets hotter, it starts to reduce in output. Gotcha. So yeah, this, is all, yeah. this is all making sense. Those, <laughs> yeah. So so that, that phenomena is something that has to be taken into account. Mm. Music is a dynamic thing, but you know it it. Uh, People sometimes like to play it pretty loud. Yeah, I'm not one of those people, but I understand that people do. I get it. I get it. Yeah. Can Can I ask you a question about the new passive fifty as they relate to the the passive original? Yeah. So does your? I mean, I guess. Well, let's tie it into what we've just been speaking about. Does the new passive fifty measure better than the original passive speaker? Yes, it does. Man, I've implemented. I've implemented the same platform which is a six and a half inch woofer an eight inch passive radiator and a one inch tweeter and in in the case of the passive one the tweeter is actually offset from the center of the baffle Mm -hmm. so that diffraction off the edge is is minimized and is a little bit better on one side than it is on the other so what we've done is we and we didn't do this in the original passive but what we've done is we've made them mirror images of themselves, the tweeters, mm-hmm. so that the tweeters are actually, in our recommended setup, the left speaker, the tweeter is closest to the inside of the stereo pair, and on the right side, the tweeter is also closest, so that there are mirrors of each other. And the, you know that improves stereo imaging because you get exactly the same thing coming from both speakers, and if there is an image created that's in the original recording, it will be reproduced quite accurately. I also put felt around the tweeter, which was in both models. And what that does is at, as the, uh, let's say uh, this felt is around the tweeter. And when the tweeter moves out and creates a positive pressure, that energy moves across the baffle until it gets to the edge of the baffle. And when it gets to the edge, there's a disruption in impedance of that acoustical pressure across the baffle. And that actually causes another source. It becomes another source when there's that disruption. And that's what Ah. we call edge diffraction. If I put felt on the baffle, as that pulse of energy moves across the baffle, it actually gets absorbed by the felt so that when it gets to the edge, there's not as much exciting. So it doesn't cause diffraction as much. So that was a technique I used back in the early days. And then when you put the grill cloth, this speaker was designed to be used with the grill on because Mm -hmm. when you put the grill on, the frame of the grill 
tucks in around the felt so that everything around the tweeter is smooth. There's no disruptions. Right. Okay. The other thing that's, uh, you know, uh, we've improved the terminal connections. The back of the speaker is now veneered. We didn't, we just painted it black back in the day. Um, but the basic size and the aesthetic of the speaker is very similar. Um, but again, the performance is very much improved because the driver technology has improved over the years. The tweeter I'm using now is, is, is as, as, as far as tweeters go, it's one of the best I've ever measured. And I've even submitted this huh. tweeter to several manufacturers to see what they could do to improve it. And they, they haven't been able to yet. So, you know, that technology is embedded into the passive 50. Mm. Also the woofer and the magnetic structures of the, of the woofer are much more sophisticated and optimized using, you know, very sophisticated software to simulate how the magnetic structure works and the distortions. I mean, if you look at it, it looks like a normal driver, but the, the materials and the shape of the pole piece and, and the, we put a copper ring in to short out the inductance of the voice coil. All of those techniques are new to this model. And so right. it's basically a, a vintage product with today's technology in it. Gotcha. Cause I think that's the way, I mean, I won't say a lot of companies are doing this, but you know, JBL have done it. Uh, Mission have done it quite recently. In fact, IAG are big on this, aren't they? But I think, you know, sort of reintroducing a, a vintage, I don't want to say styled because that's how it originally looked, but a, a, a vintage appearing product yeah. is an abs absolute killer move in this, in this particular time. But I, I, I wanted to ask you, you said that driver technology has, has come along a huge well, come along leaps and bounds in the, in the last 50 years. Is that where most of the advantages lie compared to, say, yeah, 50 years ago? Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's in the – well, yeah, the driver technology that is, that is realized because we have much more sophisticated software to do simulations. Right. So, you know, a lot of these designs were empirical back in the day, you know, just – trial and error and, and, you know, see how it works. And the priorities back in those days was to get the frequency response right and, you know, damping the cone materials. I used to try all kinds of things. If you look at some of the old vintage PSBs, I used to take black silicon mm. and put four little strips of it, two on the outside around the surround and two close to the dust cap to try and change the, the way it behaves. And nowadays we just simulated based on materials and cones and surrounds and and durometers of surrounds and spider types whether they're progressive or non-progressive and we can input those into simulation programs that really tell us what the best combination of things are the components aren't this aren't much different it's just how they're implemented that that's different how they're optimized it's different right so the crossover components I mean, oh, are, are the they, crossovers are, they are also the crossovers are ah, also optimized. Okay, are. Right. What I do is, as I take and once I've got the driver platform established, I put the driver into the box mm -hmm. that I that I'm proposing to put it in, and I tune it for the low frequency, and and then I input that data into a simulation program that actually, if I put the topology in, I just 
push a button. I, I create a target curve that I want the driver to, to, to be crossed over at. And I want it to be the right response over its operating range. And I push a button and it just automatically optimizes based on the parameters that I've set for the target. Back in the day when I was doing that, I was just twisting resistors and changing capacitors by hand to try and change things. It, it was just all done in like the, the, the designs were done using acoustic testing but the trial and error was just done by trial and error. <laughs> but nowadays, it's amazing how how it's amazing how close you can get when I do a simulation, get the raw da data of the driver, plug it into an optimization program, then I build that exact crossover, <laughs> and it's amazing how close it is. It, it's just and back in the day, it would have been great for me to have that those kind of tools, but they didn't exist back then. That was so back in the days when, you know, <laughs> Teal and Small were just getting started. Uh, Dick Small was still in university in Australia at the time, writing mm. uh, uh, writing his uh, papers on tuning boxes for loudspeakers. So does that mean that it's now, it's a quicker process for you to design a loudspeaker, to bring it from sort of conception to finished product? Well, it's, it's part... It's taken 50 years for me to get here. So it, it's all of that time that's accumulated so that now designs with all of that experience are, and technology, of course, computer technology, yes, has made speaker design much more efficient. But now that I have time, I, I can get the fundamental design done very quickly. And I can mm -hmm. spend a lot more time on the finessing the product as I said earlier about doing listening. And another aspect, and it's just stepping aside from the 50, which is a passive loudspeaker, a lot of what I do now is designing speakers that are associated with DSP and electronics. So that, um, um, you know, we make powered loudspeakers that are using pretty sophisticated uh DSP to do all the EQ and all the dynamic controls and uh, you know in terms of acoustics the mm. rules are still the same in terms of dispersion and power handling and distortion but um, I spend more time doing uh, you know tuning of the new technology that's in loudspeakers which includes a lot of electronics. As you may or may not know, PSB is part of a, a group of companies, three brands, yes, uh, yes. PSB, NAD, and Blue Sound. Mm -hmm. And uh, because we are uh, all under one roof, you know, the acoustic uh, responsibilities are really focused around PSB's input to the projects. Mm -hmm. And that, that doesn't just uh, limit itself to uh, PSB, but also... Uh, I did some headphones under the NAD brand. Uh, we've done some little projects with speakers with NAD and some of the blue sound products, which are all in one speakers, a sound bar, uh, a small uh, one called the flex one called uh, the, the pulse two I and one mm -hmm. called uh, the pulse mini. And uh, all of these products uh 
have electronics associated with them with DSP and that. And that's, that's the direction that, that the industry is going in, um, in terms of particularly when it comes to smaller uh, loudspeakers uh, that are more universal and much simpler to operate. I mean, even, you know, Google and uh, Amazon, all these companies are getting into this uh, category of powered loudspeakers mm. for various reasons, uh, doing streaming and connecting to the internet and all that sort of stuff. So that's a part of what I do on a daily basis. <laughs> right. I mean, what are your thoughts on sort of more higher end loudspeakers becoming more often active streaming loudspeakers? Well, I, you know, as a speaker designer, <clears throat> you know, the high-end audio uh, that likes to use big power amplifiers and passive large loudspeakers, um, I don't think that's ever going to really change for, for a lot of people. But from a, from a technical standpoint, it makes more sense to have the system totally integrated. So the, the, the speaker system is a closed system rather than an open system. And being a closed system from any engineering aspect is a better way to go, mm. um, particularly when it comes to, you know, tuning the loudspeaker as a system. I don't know what, I mean, as a speaker designer, one thing I don't know is where they're going to end up in a room and, I do my best to make it as neutral as possible, hoping that the room is pretty good. Mm. Um, there's other aspects of it in, in terms of, you know, amplification and uh, how much power are you putting to it? And, you know, how have we set the dynamics of the system so that it doesn't go into stress? I mean, music, music or life in general, sound in general in, in our everyday lives has a much wider dynamic range than any hi-fi system can reproduce. I mean, that's just a fact. Right. It's just not, not possible. In terms of low-level signals with noise floors and, and distortion to high-level signals, which you know, take the acoustical event to a point where it starts to move bodies around, you know, like uh, in, in, the, in, in, in the real world, <laughs> that exists, you know, hmm explosions and uh catastrophic events uh lightning bolts all of mm. those things are hard to reproduce acoustically right but would you say that i mean were you to activate with a dsp crossover the say for example the passive 50 yeah. would, would you then would you prefer like just you as paul barton the engineer would you prefer to do it that way because you have more control and you can probably net a better result yeah I get a better result because I can do some micro tuning as well. Right. Um, and I, you know, I, it gives me a bit more control over the frequency response than I would with a typical passive crossover. I mean, you could do those things passively, but it would be at a cost. And the cost would be the system's sensitivity. Hmm. As you start to layer components that are passive in the, in the line with the loudspeaker, then you you know start to run into issues and and another one could be heat. I mean, um, 
you know you have to you have to tune the the, the levels of the of the components um, things are a little bit simpler when it comes to driving a loudspeaker if the speaker is connected directly to the amplifier mm. and all of the tuning is done prior to that right so as as it would be in an active system so you'd have yeah, yeah, yeah. right because i i cover a lot of active speakers <laughs> nowadays and I get a lot of pushback from many of my viewers. Basically, I, I don't think they understand from an engineering point of view how, how much better. Potentially, it can be better. And, mm. you know, with digital amplifiers and the technology, we've got distortion so low, it's unbelievable. And, and amplification in today's world is, you know, becoming much more well well established i guess um and and also it's it's a matter of you know you got to think about it in terms of cost effectiveness as well mm. i mean as a as a business person engineer i i have to take in take into account when i do anything how that impacts the cost and is it worth the money to do it that way and any system that is dedicated can be more optimized and optimizing means you know what you can put into it and just how much you can get away with or if cost is a factor then you can better tune it you know it's just the kind of thinking that you can go through in justifying whether you approach it from one perspective or another perspective mm. whether it's amplified or whether it's whether it's a closed system or whether it's an open system, whereas the open system is where the customer chooses the amplification. And that, for a lot of people, is where the joy is, and also some frustrations as well. But well, it gives them the, it gives them the option of uh, upgrading and doing kinds of things that are fun to do for audiophiles. Right, right. Mix and, and match, you know, playing yeah. around. <laughs> I'd like to think that you know our target customers hopefully would be those guys. Uh, mm but also, or those guys and girls, and also um, people who want the performance but don't want to worry about all the missing and matching and doing it. They just want to make it simple, but they mm. want the highest quality at the same time. So do you think we'll see a, a DSP-activated passive 60? Paul, is that possible? Well, there... Let me say it this way: it, it's it's an area where I am expanding uh, a lot of energy, uh, putting a lot of energy into, it. and uh, I don't want to say much more because you can bet that I'm working on stuff that I'm hinting towards, and it takes time for that stuff to show of results. <laughs> yes, of course. I mean, in in the blue sound, I've implemented uh, a lot of. DSP into all-in-one systems, mm. and uh, the results uh, are showing to be quite, quite good. Um, and we, we we also make some uh, powered loudspeakers in our Alpha series, mm -hmm. and one's called the AM3, and the other's called the AM5, and they're uh, self-powered, tiny bookshelf loudspeakers. Uh, one is a four and a half inch woofer. The other is a five and a quarter inch woofer. Mm. 
and they uh, even have um, Eric Edwardson's phono preamp design built into them. So you huh. can plug you can plug a turntable into these self-powered loudspeakers, and you have a complete system. Right, but then uh, correct me if I'm wrong. They're not active, though, are they? They just power yes, they them. are. They are active. They got an active yeah. crossover in them. Yeah. Ah, oh, okay. Uh, yeah, yeah. There, 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 there. There's an amp driving the tweeter and an amp driving the woofer. Right. Gotcha. Okay. And then, I mean, I guess you've got some things coming that haven't been announced yet, <laughs> which I don't think we could talk about. Um, in terms of sort of active speakers, but um, yeah, that seems to be a direction that uh, <clears throat> that we've, you know worked on for quite some time and uh you know we actually built a little computer monitor speaker many years ago called the alpha ps1 mm -hmm. but now we have the uh, and the, the new powered am5s and am3s uh, also you can bluetooth to them and they have aptex hd mm -hmm. and so you get pretty good performance out of a pair of loudspeakers as an all-in-one system. Hmm. I've got one more question for you then, Paul. I mean, is, is there any sort of project loudspeaker or otherwise that you haven't yet worked on or that you would like to work on? Um, not really, because there, there is something I'm working on right now <clears throat> that is quite a deviation from what I've done before. And I won't say mm -hmm. much more than that. Okay. And, All right. So watch this space. It, it, it's not just an implementation of say electronics or drivers. It's a whole new kind of approach to loudspeakers in terms of what it's been designed for mm. and what use it's been designed for. So anyway, that's all I'm going to say right now. <laughs> Okay. Okay. Well, okay. Well, we'll look forward to that. I mean, thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. I've got to say that talking to you for me is like going to school in the oh. best possible way. You know, like I, I learn, I learn stuff and I think that's fantastic. So I'm hoping that, you know, the listeners have learned things today as well. So I really appreciate that. Yeah. And I hope you invite me back again because I could talk for hours if you wanted me to. Well, we, we might do that when the, the thing that we can't talk about now has been announced. Maybe we'll do uh, that. I mean, I'm yeah, happy we to. should because it would just be an extension of what we're talking about right now. Okay, so let's call this part one, yeah, and then we'll do a part two in what three weeks, four weeks, and we can talk about those other things. Yeah, when the time is right, which should be around that time. Um, mm. Yeah, I'd love to do it again. Me too. Marvelous. Okay, then we can. I can go back to school again. That'll be fantastic. <laughs> I, I've talked a lot. Now you can digest that and maybe come up with some more questions as we talk more. Yeah. I mean, I guess from somebody from my point of view, I'm still scratching the surface when it comes to measurements because I'm a total beginner. You know, I'm, I'm learning as I kind of talk to people, read things, pick up things from videos here and there. And I think, I think that sort of reflects where a lot of my audience are coming from as well. So I'm trying to sort of represent them when I talk to people like you rather than just being, I mean, I can't possibly be an expert on this kind of thing, which right. is possibly a good thing in some respects for those audience members. I guess if you are already a loudspeaker designer expert, you're probably not going to get much out of a conversation that I might have with somebody like you, Paul. But I don't think there are many people who are experts in loudspeaker design 
an analysis as you are. So yeah. the more people we can sort of bring along the road, I think the better. So yes, I will have a think about what you've said today. I'll digest it and I'll try and come back with some sort of follow-up questions. I might even ask some of my audience to suggest, suggest some questions as well yeah, because because they be might have good. some good ones. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Great. Let's do that. All right. Well, let's wrap this one up. Um, thank you very much for joining us today, Paul. And I look forward to talking to you again. Yeah, me too. <laughs>